Today's podcast is a special episode touching on the importance of mental health. Mental health and neurological disorders are major issues with an estimated 7% of the U.S. adult population, approximately 16 million people, experiencing at least one depressive episode in 2019. The rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men. In 2020, men died by suicide four times more than women. Pharmacists have a unique opportunity to talk with and identify the warning signs of people in mental distress and possibly suicidal. Since the pandemic, pharmacists and pharmacy technicians have experienced more work-related stresses than ever before, and burnout is a serious issue impacting many in healthcare service roles. Be aware of your fellow pharmacy associates and be sure to talk with each other about your feelings and stresses for better mental health management. Learn more from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at pharmacypodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the executive director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. And today we are having a a very special, very personal conversation with someone who is near and dear to to the hearts of PUP members everywhere. And that, of course, is our founder, Dave Marley. Dave, welcome to the podcast. It's so, so good to have you back. Thank you. Glad to be here and uh, looking forward to chatting with you. Yes. And we are going to be talking about a a project that you were working on for quite some time, and that is your book. You've just published a book, Finding Your Way, One Man's Search for Sanity, Sobriety, and Success, which just came out and which I read cover to cover and and marked up. Uh, It was really, really, really good. Congratulations, by the way, on getting a book published. (laughs) (laughs) So um, before we jump into the book, though, so so for the PUT members who are new or or haven't been around since PUT's founding, uh, could you introduce yourself and and share a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, My name is Dave Marley, and I am a former pharmacy owner. Uh, Sold my store back in December of 2020. Uh, opened the pharmacy in November of 2003, um, had pretty good success through the first five to six years, and then things started getting weird with the PBM world. Uh, around 2011, got frustrated with how the world was dealing with the, the PBMs, the pharmacy world specifically, um, and on a whim, literally, got together with a couple of guys and started PUT, or Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, and 
did our best, you know, for a few years with me at the helm of trying to expose the games that the PBMs play. You know, it's kind of funny looking back now when we were talking about those things, you know, not many people were aware of what's going on. There wasn't much conversation around PBMs. And, you know, it's quite gratifying now that 10 years later, there's a whole lot more awareness, not a lot of action, to be honest, you know, not, not a lot of uh, uh, results-based action, a lot of action, but we don't get a lot of change. And, and you know, they still do what they do. And it's, it's in fact, it's gotten much worse. Um, and so that's very frustrating. But uh, uh, like I said, we we carried on and, and uh, had a good run. And then in 2020, we sold the business and uh, here I am. And that's really, that's that's fantastic. I think that what's remarkable about your journey is how you started in pharmacy. And you talk a little bit about this in the book. You, your dad was not a pharmacist. Your mom was not a pharmacist. You, you found your way into this profession you discovered something, you know, great about it that worked for you. And then as you were on the rise, first as a, a retail pharmacist, and then as a, as a store owner, like you, like so many, you know, people out there who dream of having a business, you invest everything into this, you start to see some success out of it. And then these outside market forces happen and it ends up going this different direction. We're, we're not going to, you know, so much today, talk about PBMs because we could, right? I think you and I could probably <laughs> talk for hours about, you know, what was it like back then? And why, why is this happening now? Because of course you're right. There's been a lot of talk and there's been, you know, uh, there have been some wins. Like we, we learned that the FTC is going to, in fact, go forward with its 6B study. But the process just to get here, just to study you know, everything that we've been talking about for the better part of a decade, it, it, it's such a huge win. And yet at the same time, it's like, ah, oh, it's a study, you know, we're not going to get yeah. there. <laughs> um, but throughout this process, there's this other side of your life that is unfolding. And that's really what you talk about in this book. So uh, just sort of starting with uh, maybe working backward here, what is it that motivated you to write this book and to tell your story, and particularly to to tell it in such an intimate way. You know, the 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 impetus behind it really was from a high school friend. You know, I had just sold the store. You know, and we were just talking about, you know, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. Play golf and follow the dead. Then he said, Well, you really need to write a book. See, my buddy from high school, he's known me since I was probably in sixth grade, and he knew a lot of the intimate, gory details, if you will, of both my younger life and uh, some of the challenges I struggled with both before owning the pharmacy and during it. And, uh, and so he said, well, you need to do a TED talk. You need to write a book. And, and my first response was, you're crazy. I'm not, I'm not a writer. I've never thought about writing. And, uh, you know, I rolled around in my head for a little while. And then, you know, I'm, I forget what prompted the idea, but the thought of ghostwriters came to mind. And I thought, well, you know, if I could find a ghostwriter and see what that's all about. And so I, I just sat down at the computer one day and started Googling ghostwriters and found a ghostwriter and, and uh, got a price. And it was a little more expensive than I realized, but I thought, you know, why not? You know, let's just get it all down on paper and um, see where it goes, you know, and I, and I didn't have any grand illusions. I still don't, quite honestly. If I've sold 50 books at this point, it's probably amazing. You know, I've, I've kind of hung up my 
marketing hat. I've kind of hung up my need to be the best and, and, and succeed hat and, and just really wanted to, to put it down on, in, in paper and literally let it go. And kind of like a dead show, you know, they say, well, once they, once they play the tune, even if it's recorded, they don't own it anymore and, and see where it goes. And so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. If the universe takes this book and puts it in the right person's hands and, you know, somehow it explodes or turns into a Netflix story, I don't know, you know, or if it, uh, you know, ends up putting uh, 2,000 books in my basement to collect dust for the next 20 years. It may, maybe it'll be that too. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's actually a good philosophy as far as just being able to to create, to create this thing and then, and then just put it out there for the world. I think that's remarkable. There's a lot of influence in this book and on your writing from The Grateful Dead, which I, I think anyone who knows you knows is your favorite band. For people who are listening who haven't read the book, I think the point of this book is your journey through addiction took you, uh, really took you, I think, to the precipice of something uh, you know, life-threatening, literally life-threatening. And then you brought yourself back. And throughout the book, I know for myself, as I was reading it, uh, you know, addiction is something that people struggle with. And 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 I come from a, a long line of of alcoholics. Uh, and so I've grown up around that. And and you know, you think to yourself when when you're living in that world, you think to yourself, oh well, I'm lucky I didn't I didn't get that, you know, because I because I'm not I am not an alcoholic, but I have an altogether different uh, set of addiction issues, which have to do more with like the 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 codependency side of it, the, the side where you're like the enabler and and doing all these activities, if you will, to try to compensate for what was going on in your own family. And so for me, particularly, I I think so much of what you wrote about really resonated, and I think that it will for everyone who picks up this book and reads it. I, the journey that you go through, the story that you tell is so intimate. What was it like writing about that? It, it was really bizarre, to be honest. When, um, you know, when, I, when I pitched it to the ghostwriter, that was the first thing she said was, You're, be prepared for some interesting reactions when you actually sit down and read your own story. You know, so we would get together um, and we got together for over three months, once a week, you know, for a two hour Zoom meeting and, and she would probe the questions and I would give the answers. And, and uh, you know, it was very cathartic. It wasn't, well, it wasn't so much surprising. I mean, as part of being in the recovery community, if you know anything about 12 steps, doing a fourth and fifth step, you know, it's kind of laying out your, all the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, and discussing it with another human being. but. Um, discussing it with a complete stranger and then seeing it written down on paper. Um, you know, it, it, it was bizarre. I don't really have a good, good description other than, you know, you're reading it going, holy shit, that, that, that's actually my life. <laughs> I'm yeah. not, it's a random book. That, that's my story. <laughs> so you, so there's one part in the book where you talk about, you've already been through recovery and you have, you're now a professional in the arena. So, so just to take a step back, it's uncomfortable to think about a pharmacist who's around drugs, who themselves could be an, an addict, right? An alcohol, an alcohol addict, drug addict. Um, you talk about 
a particular time when you went through your recovery and then you you backslid. Mm -hmm. And I, I wondered when you look back at that period, when you when you read your descriptions and you you know think about that, I, I'm wondering what what was that like for you? What I, you say, you share so much about it in the book, but for people who are listening, particularly for anyone who who would be listening now and might identify with uh, something like that, mm -hmm. what was that like? But how did you find the courage to? you know, come clean about it and get yourself back on track again. Let me see if I can give you maybe a five minute Reader's Digest addiction history, because it, you really got to put it all together to even cover a snapshot. So my my use in, in active addiction started much younger than a lot of the pharmacists that I treated. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. But you know, I landed in rehab for alcohol and cocaine addiction at the age of 22 after being kicked out of pharmacy school twice. Um, you know, and so then when I got sober, you know, when I went back to pharmacy school sober and graduated sober, you know, and getting introduced to what was then the very early stage of the pharmacist profession, pharmacist recovery network coming together in the various states. Um, I kind of got pulled into it quickly because I think I was one of the first people that got sober as a student. And so I could walk the process through from the very beginning. And so, you know, I got involved with what in a lot of states back then were just committees. I got involved with a committee in New York State. I got involved with a fledgling committee in North Carolina when I moved to North Carolina. And then we actually took the North Carolina program full time at which I ended up being the director. So I walked away from practicing pharmacy to be the director of the state's pharmacist recovery network. You know, and then from there, stayed sober through all that. And it wasn't until I opened the store and, and uh, got busy and got stressed and, and forgot all the things that I had learned and ultimately, you know, relapsed. And then the reason I went from point A to point B was we don't talk often enough about addiction, about it being a relapsing disease, just like any other condition. You've got people who are good about their blood pressure for a while and then they backslide. People are good about the diabetes for a while and they backslide or the cholesterol for a while and they backslide. You know, addiction's the same way, you know, and that it takes a lot of work. You know, you don't have to backslide. You don't have to relapse. There's plenty of people that have, you know, get sober and stay sober forever and never pick up another drink or a drug. But there's the reality is there, there's probably more that, that relapse at least once, maybe twice. Um, and then obviously those that, that definitely struggle forever and never get sober, you know? And so to your first question, what was it like to relapse? The shame was mind blowing, you know? And it's what kept me from going back to recovery. I mean, addiction is a shame disease to begin with. I mean, it, it's just, it's just inherent. You're doing things that you don't, you know, you shouldn't be doing. Uh, you're getting in trouble, you're ruining God knows what parts of your life. So it carries a huge amount of shame. Pharmacists in general, and I'm not saying just me, most pharmacists have that shame and then some. Why? Because I'm a pharmacist. I shouldn't be doing this. There's that added pressure of, of uh, I should have known better, let alone the, the fear of getting caught, losing your license and, and all that other good stuff. So getting back into the recovery program was about a four-year process from the time I relapsed till the time I, I sobered up again. Yeah, you are you are nothing if not outspoken, 
gregarious. You, in the in the time I've known you, and then even more so after reading your book, because there there are several like this. So for people who haven't read it yet, and I totally encourage everybody to read this book. It's not it's not like some sad story. It's not like oh poor Dave. I mean, you start off from the beginning like. I was, you know, on the street with other kids and I had this, you know, normal life. And then you did some really funny things. Like there's a stunt that you pulled walking out on stage, which, you know, later I think came back to, to haunt you. I won't ruin that for people <laughs> who are reading the book. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're like, you're, you were out there. You are somebody, you're, you're, you're a leader. You're, you're kind of always like pushing the envelope. I think, you know, if someone looked up the definition of pushing the envelope, yours would be like the picture that was accompanied with that. <laughs> so I, I can imagine how that must've been for you. And then I have so many thoughts as you were just talking, I was thinking, you know, you mentioned that it's, it's a, it's a relapse disease. It's a shame disease. And I was just remembering, you know, in the news very recently in a in a different state, there's a, a big, you know, uh, primary. Well, there's there's going to be a big race coming up. And one of the candidates had a stroke. And then it comes out that, you know, he didn't follow his doctor's advice and he kind of didn't go back to the doctor for five years. And now, you know, it's like there's these serious medical complications. And and I was thinking about how when you were describing that, I'm like every disease in some way is is a little bit like that, right? We we bear a responsibility for our illness, but it, but I think the reason it's hard to talk about is because particularly in a public profession or a public facing profession, people can't people won't be kind about it. Is probably the best way to say that. So you know, I would almost say I was very um, touched by that story because I think it takes that level of courage to be able to confront that precisely because of the shame. Well, and then the, the advantage I have now, you know, being retired and with the sale of the store, I'm financially set. Um, nobody can fuck with me now. <laughs> I can put it out there and, you know, be completely honest. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when politicians leave po uh, politics and they finally get honest about drug abuse or guns or whatever, you know, because they don't have anything to worry about. I don't have anything to worry about anymore. You know, my situation is set. And so, the main reason for the book, other than my friend prompting me through it, is that, you know, it hits on a lot of subjects and hopefully in a variety of ones, and we can cover the various ones if you want to, but, you know, is to give some level of hope that if you're an adopted kid, if you're born with a deformity, like I had a cleft palate, if you have addiction, if you have mental illness, if you're a suicide survivor, the family member or a person who actually committed suicide, you know, to, to try and throw all those pieces out there and say, look, you know, if you didn't know me, you know, and even for a lot of people in my community don't really know all the details, you'd look and say, oh, yeah, he had Marley drug and he sold it. And now he's financially set. What a wonderful life. You know, yes, my life now is wonderful. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, but I've lived a pretty fucked up life. You know, <laughs> you know, and most of the problems of my own making, you know, the, the one thing, you know, that I, I learned about addiction, you know, it's kind of like a balancing act. You know, I either maintain myself spiritually uh, to try and maintain my sense of well-being or I'll find another way to do it. You know, and there's a lot of dysfunctional ways that I found through the years to make myself feel good when I didn't like the way I felt. Yeah. And you, so you have your family around you, uh, Elizabeth, who you met, uh, 
in school? Was in, it in pharmacy school at the University of Utah School on Alcoholism and Drug Dependencies, which is a program that was put on by the pharmacy profession sponsored by APHA. Uh, we met back in 1992. My first time I went there was in 1990. And she seems like she really has been the best possible partner you could have and, and really anybody could have in this. I know, you know, it's not easy to be married anyway, but then, you know, the, 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 the issues uh, that we bring to our marriages, right? <laughs> and then on top it's of hard to be married to me. <laughs> just be honest. Um, All right. Well, I was trying know. not to say that. <laughs> um, you know, I did a lot of dumb shit in my marriage. I mean, there's, there's no two ways around it. You can pull it all the way back to, you mentioned early on the codependency issues. We, uh, in her family, there is a ton of alcoholism and addiction. And so, you know, if you know anything about codependency, it's multi-generational. It just keeps the gift that keeps on giving. You could have had an alcoholic in your family three generations down, you know, might've been your grandfather, but you're going to still carry that, that burden because it goes from the grandparent to the parent down to you. And so just makes sense that we found each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, your life is, has been really interesting. If you were someone who believed in karma, by the way, do you believe in karma? Um, in a general sense, yeah. General sense, yeah. I believe uh, in I would, the, the universe has, does lots of weird things that I don't understand. <laughs> you, you've had an interesting journey. You, you're right. I mean, so, so you were adopted. You had a cleft palate. You are an addict you have the ad, that the addiction disease mm -hmm. that manifests in all different ways and all different kinds of people you have this amazing marriage you have your your kids you are you know support one of your children through um so one of one of your children is trans right, right. a female right. the male female the male trans kid 20 years old now love them to which, death which which is which is uh you know, it really is a lightning rod topic, right? So, so it's almost like your life journey then prepared you to be able to be there for this person in your life who you love so very much to be able to support him in his journey forward. You, I mean, you've really sort of walked through fire in the all in all but the literal sense here, <laughs> and it's, uh, and, it's and inspiring. I think you know, and I think that applies to everything. Obviously, in your family, it's most important. You know, that, that I guess you'd call me an empath. You know, meaning that you know the the ability to feel others' pain, especially in your family. You know, when when you're bullied as a kid, you know, you either a learn to fight, which we did some of that too, but you also you develop a sense of empathy for others when they're going through struggles of their own. Um, you know, and I, I think that's reflected in the profession I chose. It's reflected in my politics. It's re reflected in kind of how I live my life. I mean, I, I feel when other people hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's part of. I want to say it's part of the addiction process, but but I feel things intently, and a lot of times I don't like the way I feel, and and if I don't have control over how I respond to that. Then I do dumb shit to change how I feel because <laughs> I don't like I don't like feeling pain, either my own and and I and it's 
it's uncomfortable to watch others go through it too. And so you, you develop that connection with people when they're struggling. It's hard. It is really, really hard. My experience of pharmacists and the pharmacy profession is that it is truly one of the most caring professions and yet it's incredibly stressful. And, and I, I, pharmacists, pharmacy and nursing, you know, God bless the people who choose to take that on as their career and their, their contribution in this life, because it's not easy. It's not easy. I'm just at, at the bare minimum, it's not easy dealing with someone who's sick. I mean, I'm not a good sick person. I'd love to think like, oh, if I'm sick, I'm just like docile and sweet, but I know how I am. <laughs> <laughs> and and I and I have seen because I, I used to years ago I worked for a, a hospital system, and I remember you know walking the floors with nurses and, and some cranky people out there and they do some mm -hmm. say and do some mean things so you know so when you talk about like the pain and being able to self medicate I, I think I think there's a lot of people who would you know who would resonate with that you have. So the Grateful Dead's been a huge influence for you. And as you and I are talking, I, you know, so people can't see us, but I can see you and you've got these posters behind you. Music is an important part of your life. What is it about the dead? What, what is it that, about this band, about their lyrics? You're about to go basically do your own tour with them yeah, on their so, tour, right? And yeah, summer tour starts uh, Monday night. Actually, I'm flying out to San Francisco to catch uh, two dead shows at the at Shoreline Theater and then a whole bunch afterwards. You know, um, you know, can't talk about the dead without being completely honest. So, you know, I do think, you know, using LSD at one point in my life and other psychedelics um, opened up my brain to another part of consciousness that uh, that wasn't there before. You know, and so their music at the time you know, the two went hand in hand to, to realize and, and feel the feel the lyrics and, and feel uh, what was going on and even be able to feel Garcia's pain. I mean, when he was going through his worst heroin addiction, I was going through my worst cocaine addiction. Now, sober, you know, it still means just as much. Um, the, I, I can still spend all day listening, listening to dead tunes in one way or the other. Um, and still feel what I felt back then. And, and that is that emotion in the lyrics, the connection of the way he played his guitar, the way the band played, the, the vibe that they give up. Um, you know, and so the lyrics connect to those feelings that, again, are very deep, deep rooted. You know, for those of you who've never spent time listening to the dead, or have no idea what I'm talking about, now I can say, you got to listen to the dead a little bit. And you don't have to be spaced out of your mind to do it it's just <laughs> kind of hard to explain it you know it's kind of like explain why do people like licorice i don't know <laughs> right yeah it's like you, you just you, it's like trying to explain the unexplainable and good try for explaining that uh, you and i are not that far apart in age uh and but i, I while i am someone who's like yeah you know i, I saw every one of your chapters is uh, refer there's a, a a song a song title at the start of every chapter which uh, I'm gathering you you did because you wanted to give a particular feeling or theme to the Yeah, chapter. unfortunately, for, for as much as I love the band, I had the publisher reach out to the Dead's publishers. Um, that's not even them anymore, it's just Warner Brothers. The original draft of the book actually had lyric, the full lyrics for each song. So if you read in the intro, which is what we learned, is I could get away with legally in the introduction to mention the song title. Those aren't protected by copyright. 
but I couldn't use song lyrics without their permission. And I, I couldn't get the permission out of them. Um, but it's actually for, for those that are reading the book, if you do read it and you, you see the song title as it relates to each chapter, Google very quickly the lyrics to that song and you'll see each, each chapter really mirrors the lyrics of that song. And that's kind of how my life is going. <laughs> yeah, that's how I realized that I, as much as I'm like, oh yeah, I know the Grateful Dead. Like, I don't know the Grateful Dead. <laughs> so some song, some song tells me, I'm like, I don't even think I know this song. You know, quickly go, go look that up. So, uh, so if I, if I begin my slow migration over and start joining you on those tours, you'll know that it was because mm. I read the book and then started looking up the different um, songs. But yeah. I, I think that, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, you know, assuming at some point you're going to get to the suicide attempt, which, you know, is, is probably the, the near closer of the book, you know, there, there's a, uh, a song called Days Between, which is a lament of pretty much Garcia and the band in their later years in life. Uh, it was a song that I put on right before I ate a handful of pills and was prepared to check out. And so, yeah, that song, if, if, you know, if you don't Google the words of any other Google words to, to Days Between or even go ahead and go on Apple Music and listen to uh, Days Between. It's a great song. So, you know, so now that you brought that up, uh, you had an aneurysm first, right? That happened first and then later on. So, so first your body tried to take your life and then mm. later on you tried to take your life. Yeah. And so you are a survivor. Like, so, so <laughs> so of the nine lives Dave Marley has, two have now been, you know, checked. Um, I'm just, that's I'll one use, of the things that's hard to get your head around. So I'll use a, another Jerry Garcia line. Back in uh, 1987, I think, after he came out of the diabetic coma, he, he said in one of the interviews, they like it when I don't die. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether it was the addiction that could have killed me early on or the aneurysm that, that damn near could have, should have killed me or the suicide attempt. Um, but yeah, back in, in uh, 2011, Actually, no, it's 2012. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a 10 year anniversary this year, as a matter of fact. May 31st of 2012, I dropped on the ice um, in my kids' hockey practice with a ruptured brain aneurysm. What was funny, you know, tying that back into pharmacy, we had just opened the can of worms and putt about the PBMs and we exposed the Lipitor rebate game when Lipitor had just gone generic. And I had actually typed up a letter. Um, and stuck it in my desk. And I told my wife, if anything ever weird happens to me, you know, take this letter to the press because we were, you know, exposing a lot of PBM nonsense. <laughs> and so yeah. there was, a, on one hand, a, a subtle but genuine fear of these guys are nothing short of the mob and it wouldn't be surprised if something weird happened to me. So, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the aneurysm was serious. You know, it uh, landed me in the ICU for a number of days. and. I remember when the, the doctor came in and said, you know, you're the luckiest of the lucky. He said, you know, one third of the people die on the table. The other third come out of surgery, um, you know, with, with, with uh, out of those that survive, two thirds of them have serious brain injury, you know, and they're, you know, vegetables, you know, so you're in the one third of the one third that, that survived it. So um, you know, it involved physical therapy and different things to get my left side working again, to be able to be able to play hockey and ski and play golf and do all the other stuff that I like to do. Yeah, it, uh, 
There, there's that, and then I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot where the question went. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay because I think what you're what you're pointing to what what I'm <laughs> I'm remembering a few minutes ago when we were talking about the universe and what it has in mind, and all I keep thinking is for every time you've said, yeah, you know what, I think, thank you, I think, I think I'm done now. The universe has come back and been like, mm -mm, sorry, back on track, Dave, because yeah. you have. There's so much that is riding on you and around you between the work that you were doing as a doctor, really what you are, pharmacist, right? Someone who was there counseling patients, taking care of them and their medications, uh, your work as a husband, your work as a, uh, a member of a recovery network and the people who, you know, look toward you and depend on you. You were, you were a leader. And, and of course, as you know, when once a leader, always a leader. You're never not that. You know, once people see you that way, you have you. your family, uh, putt. You know, the starting of putt. Uh, it, it's sort of like the universe was like, yeah, Dave, no, 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 no. We've got plans for you, so keep marching. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you know, came out the other side of the aneurysm and kept going with putt, and then and then at some point realized, you know, I, I need to focus on my own my own business take some of what I've learned, you know, through the years and, and some of what I'm doing with pot and then, you know, focus on taking the business to another level. So I got another couple of years, if you will, and then things got crazy again. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And so you reached a point where it seemed like too much. You took some pills. Elizabeth found you mm -hmm. and saved your life. So the, 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 to, again, trying to give a Reader's Digest version. We, we had taken the, a couple of concepts that we had developed in the store around our extended supply generic drug program and then, you know, our, our ED program. And, you know, we, we blew it out into this nation, national program, shipping, shipping drugs nationwide. Um, but we cut a few corners and we had to answer to the Board of Pharmacy for it. And you know, as part of their their sanctions for for what we did, um, we lost the ability to ship to about 20 states and it pushed me over the edge. You know, I'd had this good run of wonderful success and, you know, figured out a way to, uh, you know, run a business outside the PBM model and things were going good. And then all of a sudden it just, um, I won't say it came to a screeching halt. It, my fear was that it would come to a screeching halt, you know? And so we, we had this board hearing and you know, I walked out of that hearing and I just lost it. You know, I, I couldn't, couldn't stop the, the, uh, the fear basically, you know, the fear of, 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 oh my God, now what, you know, we built this, this behemoth of a business, you know, and we've got all these employees and we're paying these benefits and, um, you know, what happens if all the money stops, you know? And so I just catastrophized myself into a corner to where I couldn't see any other way out. You know, even talking about it in the book and even talking about it now, kind of hard to, hard to figure out how I got there because I haven't felt that, you know, and that happened a little over three years ago and I haven't felt it, felt that way ever since. And so it's kind of hard to, imagine how that felt one because it was so horrible i don't ever want to feel it again um but to be in such a dark place where you don't see 
not only do you not see a way out, but you truly believe that your world and your family and everyone around you would be better off if you were just out of the picture. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of how it, how it happened. And so, you know, being somewhat of a coward, I didn't want to have to feel any pain. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was one of those, oh yeah, I went to pharmacy and there's all this talk about opioid overdoses. and That'd be an easy way to check out. And it wasn't. No, um, you know, so the, again, the universe just had different plans and, and Lord knows, I, I mean, I, I, I did everything I could to check out. This was not a half-assed suicide attempt. This was the real deal. Not only did I look up a toxic dose of oxycodone, but I actually doubled it. I thought, all right, let's not leave anything to chance here. When I, when I got home at around seven o'clock in the morning, my wife had already left for, for uh, her job. And so when she came home at around noon and saw me sleeping, so she thought, she thought, great, he's finally sleeping because he hadn't slept in God knows how many days. So she left and I should have been dead by then, honestly. But then she came back around four o'clock and I was still sleeping. Um, and that's when she found the note and then called the EMTs who came out. I remember none of this. This is all I'm going off of what she told me. Um, you know, the EMTs came, I had this faraway look in my eyes, I wasn't conscious, apparently they shot me full of Narcan, sent me off to the ER, and she was so pissed off, she didn't even go to the hospital, she's like, whatever, <laughs> you know, he's fine, I've got to sort this out in my head before I even go in. It's funny, it's one of those uh, ironies, you know, I remember when I used to give talks on addiction and Narcan and whatnot, always saying, if you're going to use Narcan, one of the things they always tell the EMTs is be sure and strap them down before you shoot them up because if they're addicts, they're going to go into withdrawal and the Narcan's going to wear off. And so, you know, you need to give them usually more than one dose. For one reason, the, the EMTs that, that, that shot me with Narcan apparently didn't know that. So they shot me full of Narcan. They thought I was good, got me to the ER, got me to the hospital, um, had me checked in, and then I crashed again. Uh, because of the amount of oxycodone that I took, their one dose of Narcan didn't get the job done. And so um, in the hospital, I coded again and they had to innovate me and basically try to bring me back from the dead. And when they, they shot me for this one drug, the pharmacist will relate to it. Um, I don't remember, but the, your hospital pharmacist know this called Levofed. My wife said, you know, when she worked in the hospital, they knew they called Levofed to leave them dead because it was li literally the last drug you gave people you know, it was a chance to, to get the heart and lungs and everything working again. And uh, somehow, you know, after a second shot of Narcan and being intubated and having aspiration pneumonia and, you know, corresponding kidney failure and liver failure and all this other stuff going on, somehow <laughs> survived all that. So. Wow. Just even hearing it again, uh, I'm reminded of, when you shared this on Facebook. So you shared this on Facebook sometime after it happened, close closer to when it happened than now. And it sent shockwaves through the community. I remember some of the board at that time talking about that and just being like, you know, like, like, oh my gosh, I never would have thought Dave would be the person to do that. So I imagine, you know, if people who aren't in your everyday life were thinking that people around you just must have been completely 
beyond floored. Mm -hmm. What was it like trying to come back and assure people you were okay? And yeah, I mean that that you know, and it, it's talked about in the book. You know, the the kind of the transition from being so freaked out with anxiety and depression and having suicidal thoughts and, and ideation and action to to how I crossed over to holy shit, I, re I really need to get better, you know, and it had to do with how close I came to, to screwing my kids up big time. And so um, I won't give that give it away that that story's in the book, but, you know, realizing that I need to do whatever the hell the professionals tell me I need to do to get back to normal. And I want to say I've done, done that so many times in my life where I'm you know, kind of screwed myself up, and, you know, kind of hit a bottom and be like, all right, well, let me get you together. You, you reach a point where you really don't give what other people think. It's kind of like, all right, they're going to believe whatever. Um, I really, you know, I can't save my face and my ass at the same time. And so that was, it was, Time to, to to focus on getting well and not really worry about what other people had to say. But, you know, when I was younger, I worried extensively about what other people thought. One of the benefits of, you know, maturity and sobriety and, and contentment is your, the ability to get to a place where you don't really give a shit what people think. Right. Yeah. Uh, you can focus on what's important. Because because the flip side of this is the the reservoir of resilience that you discover you have so you know you mentioned a little while ago about the the you cut corners it resulted in a, a big mess for your business and uh a lot of fear you know the, the shame that that comes with that is so closely linked to the the shame that is the root of of addiction disease and yet every time you come through it, there's only one way that, that anyone can. And that's, that's through this reservoir of resilience. So I, I think this is a, a good, a good moment to talk about that because out of, out of all of these things that have happened, you have created so much good, just starting, starting with this organization, which I know, you know, you did not envision putt would be what it is today, right? You started it as a PR campaign. And today, it is an organization that does advocacy. It connects uh, members of independent pharmacy to similar professions. People are, are talking, sharing stories, getting stronger. We have a, a library of materials, you know, and, and this was this is all something that you started. And this is just one thing. This is just a business thing, right? And then there's your the sale of your pharmacy and you know, the, the many good things that have come out of that, as far as tapping into that, that reservoir, or, or, or maybe another way to say that would be finding that moment of courage. What, what, what would you say to somebody right now who, you know, they're, they are in their store or their practice and it really, it, it feels impossible. You know, how, how, how can someone like that tap into the strength that maybe they don't even know they have. I'm going to give you a word that uh, you're kind of alluding to. It was originally my original thought for the for the title of the book, but it's been overused, and that's perseverance. Um, I mentioned in the book that when I graduated from pharmacy school at Buffalo, I was given an award for perseverance, and then I never thought about it that way or looked at it. But you mentioned it early on. You know, addiction. If I had to 
paraphrase it into, into one or two words, you know, it's fear and it's shame. And then I've learned that the majority of my life sober, before I got sober, before I got into drugs, before I got out of drugs, you know, so much of my life was, was run by fear, you know, and a very simple one of fear. I'm not going to get what I want or fear that someone's going to take away something I already got, you know, and it, it's a soul sickness really, because it, when you live your life that way, it's, it's a self-centered fear. I've got a friend in the, in the 12 step program that says, you know, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about, you know? And, and so <laughs> that's that, really that's, that, that kind of is, is active addiction, what the mind of an untreated addict is like, you know? And so what's the counter to that? You know, the counter to that is again, another friend in AA told me, you know, and this is leading down the, the, the topic of spirituality. Please, for God's sakes, do not confuse that with religion or religiosity. Spirituality is a completely different animal. And I'm probably the most non-religious spiritual person you'll ever meet. But, you know, I was told early on when getting sober, don't get hung up on this word God. He said, you know, all you need to know about God is there is one and you're not it. And, and that's, you know, the where does the strength come from? with any of these situations. When I'm working a spiritual program or trying to live spiritual truths as I know them, I can usually handle just about anything. The converse of that is, I love 12 step based acronyms, you know, where God stands for good orderly direction. And the opposite of that is ego, which stands for easing God out. You know, when I think I've got my together, and I can handle it without some outside source, you know, higher power, whatever you want to call it. That's usually when I fuck up my life and I do a really good job of it, <laughs> you know, because that's, that, that's where that strength comes from. It's where I got it back after, where I got it back after getting sober at a young age. It's where I got it back after the aneurysm. It's where I got it back after the suicide attempt, you know, and it's where all of my focus is today, I want to say it's easier, you know, being retired and not having all the stresses of the store, but the reality is it is. You know, I, I still look at and monitor a lot of pharmacy message boards, pharmacy Facebook pages, and it's bittersweet at times. You know, there, there's times where I think, oh, I need to message that person. Maybe I've got an idea for them to help. But there's often a lot of times where I'm like, I am so glad I'm not in the middle of that crap anymore. You know, because what that, what that presented and where I know personally for myself, where I struggle the most, especially in the pharmacy world, is when I feel powerless, when things are outside of, I will say my control, because again, I, I don't really have control over anything. I'm tasked with doing the legwork, but I don't get to control the outcome. That, that's where the, I say the universe comes in. How I can respond to challenges, again, is a reflection on where I am in my spiritual journey. With the suicide attempt, you know, again, I'm just going to rat on myself and just be completely honest. You know, when our ED program, the Sildenafil program that we got kind of famous for, we had a great run from 2014 to 2017 to where our 
everything changed. Our cash flow was great. I didn't have the PBMs to worry about. I mean, we still had PBM business, but it was a very small part of what we were doing. The problem was my ego came back, you know, and, and I thought, oh, how would I so smart, you know, that I figured it out. I don't have to worry about the PBMs. I don't have to worry about money. And, and, I, and I think I mentioned this in the book. I re actually remember a day in the pharmacy because I used to have a routine where I would go in, I would get up in the morning, have my morning meditation, spiritual breakfast, if you want to call it, and, 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 and get on with my day. I remember having a, a day around 2017, 2018, literally standing at the counter, looking at you know, our solenophil strips were just going off the, off the charts and thinking, okay, God, I'm going to let you handle the addiction, but I've got the business side under control now. You know, and then that's just pure ego, you know, and, and that really set the stage for my downfall, you know, because when they hit the fan and we had the licensure issues and we had the financial fears and all that stuff, I didn't have a very good spiritual program at that moment to handle it. Had I been living a spiritual program in all aspects of my life, not just my addiction, then I probably wouldn't have lost my mind. <laughs> you know, I would have been, all right, well, you know, whatever. Um, and I give another example in the book where when coming outside, coming out the other side of that and having come off the other side of the suicide attempt, you know, and then setting the stage to sell the business. We had one potential sale go through a three-month due diligence period, and the sale fell apart. Now, at that time, I was spiritually fit, and it was like, oh, oh well, that sucked. Let's move on. Let's try again. You know, whereas had I not gotten myself back under control, you know, spiritually fit, I could have gone right back down that rabbit hole all over again. So. To answer your question, where does it come from? It comes from, you know, a trust that I'm not really in control. I got to show up. I got to suit up. I got to do the work. And then I got to let it go. Yeah, that's really well said. You are very generous in the book with your advice. There's not just the the story and the the, the advice that you learn along this, this path that you have walked but you're also generous with your business advice. You're generous about giving credit where credit is due to people who either inspired you or gave you ideas or things that you were able to follow up on. Uh, since the sale of your business, uh, there's the Marley Charitable Foundation. So in addition to resilient, there's this amazing generosity that, that you have had the whole time. And for all of us out there who are the, the beneficiaries of your, your wisdom and your generosity, and, and even the lessons that we've learned from the times that you have stumbled, I think, we, I, think I am the perfect representative to say thank you mm -hmm. from all of us, because uh, it, it was a joy to read the book. It was gripping. There were times when, you know, like you could read this thing and, and just be like, just cringing and feeling some of the, the pain that you felt or the shame or the fear. And I think it was marvelous, a uh, marvelous thing that you did in putting your story to, to paper and allowing the rest of us to participate in it with you and, and be able to learn from you. So thank you so much for that. 
Oh, thanks. And I've got to give you guys a little credit, a lot of credit. We had an idea with Putt. And, and when I stepped down, I mean, was far as they walked away, um, you guys took it to a place that I couldn't, what was that? I couldn't, I didn't imagine, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to, to kind of sit back and watch you guys do what you do and, you know, be kind of proud of everything that you're doing. You know, again, that, that FTC study, you know, the other thing that you may have figured out in the book, I'm not very patient. In that. <laughs> that's, a, really? that's, the product, that's the product of 10 years of work. I did the first three, you guys did the last seven, you know, and that's how it happened. I tell people I'm, I'm, I'm the idea guy. I mean, one of the best books I ever read was the E-Myth Revisited, you know, where it talks about entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, I'll have these entrepreneurial ideas and throw them out there and, and uh, it either works quick or it doesn't. I, I, I'm not real good at long-term investment. <laughs> you know, I hear you and, and thank you for that. And, you know, we've been blessed uh, with, a continuing bo a board of uh, that has continued to to regenerate itself and bring itself to the fight. And you know, you handpick some amazing people who then went on to handpick some amazing people uh, to trust and run this organization. So it, it's a real joy. But I think so. One of the last things we'll we'll just chat about here real quickly to kind of tie ourselves up because again, like we could talk forever on this topic. It's just completely fascinating. I had said to you, I think you should write, I think you should write a book about PBMs. Um, I can totally empathize with why you would be like, I will never write a book about that. But you did have the foresight early on to see what was happening. Uh, so when you, when you look at now the future, uh, you know, and, and what there is to say, I, I guess I'm wondering what, what advice would you have for the pharmacists who, so we have, we still believe it or not have people opening up independent pharmacies and, and again, God bless them, but we still have, you know, for every time there's a, you know, a win, the opposition comes back and manages to mess it up. What advice do you have for people who, you know, are still in it, still dealing with it? Um, what, what would you say to them? It, it's hard because, you know, when, when I got started in pharmacy, I worked as a, as a delivery boy a little mom and pop drugstore in my hometown. And even back in 1982, you know, when I first started there, back then they were saying, God, this sucks. <laughs> Insurance companies, you know, we're working, we're feeling working harder to make less, you know? And, and so I would go through there and, and um, even if up to 1990 or 92 before I graduated pharmacy school, I'd still go back there and they would say the same thing. God, it still sucks. And I remember I hung on to that for the longest time and it kept me from opening a store. And I remember when I opened the store, you know, again, we had, we had really good success the first couple of years. I remember thinking, what's the matter with those guys? You know, this is, this is great. You know, we're killing it. Um, and then we hit that plateau you know, where, you know, kind of the growth stopped just organically, you know, we couldn't grow much more in the neighborhood we were in with, with the business model we're in, you know, and then watching the PBM start chipping away at it. My hat's off to those that are still in it because we are a resilient profession. There are those, and, and don't get me wrong, there's still lots, they're, they're still the old guard. They still try to stick to doing things the way they always did, and they're not willing to change, and they can't, adjust 
And those are the ones that do end up going out of business and God bless them. I, I get it. It's hard and it sucks. You know, so, so I'm torn between, honestly, it was probably the majority of the profession that doesn't want to change. And it's just pissed off that these guys are screwing with their business. And it isn't fair. There's not a damn thing fair about it. They grew a great business. They're doing what they, you know, they always did and doing what I did. You know, I always said, if I could provide a good service, it'll work out. And so they provided a good service. They built a great business and the PBMs are destroying it, you know? And, and so that's frustrating. And my hat's off to the crowd that still is able to figure out a way to find other revenue streams and get around the nonsense and still stay in business and still keep doing what they love. And so I feel for the guys that don't want to change and I'm happy as heck for the guys that are willing to change. Um, but I will tell you, I told both my kids, nope, you ain't going into pharmacy. <laughs> this is a fucked up profession. We don't have, you, you don't have control. I don't know what I'd tell those folks. No, good luck. <laughs> That's probably the best thing you can say. And, and I, I think that is a, a great assessment. Uh, we, from time to time, more often than I wish would happen, we do get messages from members who are not members anymore they are selling their store and more than one time we've heard someone say what you just said which is i've told my kids do not follow in the family business and that's really heartbreaking especially when you look at a business that's second or third generation family owned and it's become so difficult because a group of people decided they could you know profiteer at every single stage that now something as simple as you know, the care you could get from your pharmacy, you can't get anymore. It's just too bad. So I'll finish with this. I'm cautiously optimistic and more of a dream, I guess, than an optimism statement. My dream is literally before I die, which is hopefully 20 to 30 years away, that, you know, much like you go all the way back to the managed care model, late 70s, Kaiser Permanente, that thing that screwed this whole thing up, you know, where intermediaries were interjected because someone believed that pharmacy was making too much money and we needed to lower costs. My dream is that the PBM game will not only be figured out, it will be exposed and it will be destroyed. And that pharmacy will recognize we need to do as a profession what the PBMs originally were designed to do. And that is we need to figure out how to control costs, do it within our own operation, contract directly with employers, or if you will, an insurance group, you know, without a PBM intermediary, you know, and negotiate a fair reimbursement that serves the purpose of keeping costs down, keeping the profession adequately paid and providing decent health care to the person buying the drugs. It's, it's, it's what it was back in the 60s. I mean, that's how it worked. I think most pharmacists today, you know, if, if you could go back to a model where, you know, whether it was a flat dispensing fee or a cost plus model, when I, when I talked to one of the guys that's still alive from Lennox Brothers, the pharmacy I grew up in, you know, it was a flat 35% markup. You know, whatever the cost of the drug was, 1.35, that was the price. And I think most pharmacies today, if you could just have a direct payment model, I would say 
1.20, whatever the number is, you know, where you're paid promptly and adequately and provide the service that the, that the patient needs and cut out all the bullshit in the middle, you know, and the rebates and all that nonsense the PBMs did. You know, the cost of the drugs goes down, the pharmacists are paid an adequate uh, reimbursement, and then the patient's taken care of. I think that's really well said. And before I die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, before you die. Well, I, I don't know, Dave, maybe, maybe you're not going to die. Maybe the universe is like, <laughs> we've decided you're going to stay. Uh, so the book is called Finding Your Way, One Man's Search for Sanity, Sobriety, and Success. Uh, Dave, where can people where can people get this book? Yeah, it is on Amazon. Uh, you, it's, I'm not well enough known yet. So if you type in Dr. David Marley book, um, you'll find it. Um, you might find it now with Finding Your Way. It might have climbed up a little bit, but you got to kind of put my name in there. I hesitate to say you can contact me by email and I'll mail you an autographed book. Um, I made the mistake of doing that early on and I was living at the post office. So <laughs> you know, honestly, yeah, go find it on Amazon. If you want it autographed, send it to me. I'll send it back to you. Let's go that way. Include a self-addressed stamped envelope. Yeah. Don't even worry. I mean, I don't even mind paying it to send it back to you. But. <laughs> That's funny. That's great, Dave. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, and for everyone who is listening, uh, please leave us comments, your thoughts. We love to get feedback from you on the podcast. Uh, until next time, this is Monique Whitney. Thank you for listening to the podcast.